0: Amen, good morning all right if you uh, don 't have a Bible if you look behind your seats, there are Bibles available for you, and you could uh, you could follow along uh, My name is matt i 'm the lead pastor here, and we are going through the book of matthew and uh, it 's exciting to do that and you know I, I think it was really great uh, what theo shared we We spent some time together this week, and um, the thing that sh- uh, Theo shared with you is basically uh, a lot of the theme of what we're looking at today in scripture. And I wanna say that before we get into uh, the book of Matthew, um, Jesus uh, has this wonderful way of demasking people. Uh, there's a movie that just came out, uh, The Lone Ranger. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I remember the old Lone Ranger and he was that masked man, right? Or uh, you think about Batman and, and the whole thing is uh, taking off someone's mask. You wanna find out their identity. And the thing about Jesus is that he knows our identity. Uh, he knows who we are, so it doesn't matter if we wear a mask. It doesn't matter if uh, we try to cover up or act one way or look a certain way because he really knows who's behind the mask. Um, I, I shared with you, I think it was last week, it might have been the week before, about the student that I had at Valley Christian High School. Do you guys remember that? He dragged the desk out of the out of the classroom, and, and he was just kind of, uh, he was one of those guys that was kind of wearing a mask a little bit. Uh, the administration at the school at the time, they just thought he was this this great kid, uh, he was, he was kind of like an Eddie Haskell. Why, hello, Mrs. Cleaver, you look very wonderful today, you know, and, and all of the adults and the, you know, principal, the dean, they thought he was this great guy, and then alone in the room, he looked over at me and said, hey, do you know who I am? Do you know I could turn this whole school against you? Um, well, I share that with you because uh, before the end of his senior year, he came into my classroom we were talking and uh, he just kind of started to, to share and it was only a couple of weeks before school was out and just me and him together and he started to cry. I said, hey, what's what's going on? He said, I've been wearing a mask this whole time through all of high school. I've been wearing this mask. And he goes, and I'm sick of it. Everyone looks at me as this clown, and I'm funny and, and jovial. And, and he said, but behind that, there's a lot of other things that are going on. And just kind of shared with that, that with me. So the seniors had this time, uh, a senior chapel where they all get together. They kind of share things. And uh, he stood up, and he shared with the whole senior class that he had been wearing a mask for four years. And uh, the last that I had heard, I, had, I don't know what's happening now, but the last that I heard, he was going to Bible college to become a youth pastor. So um, just really cool. But Jesus has a way of uh, demasking us. Um, you know what? It says no connection available. I'm not sure if you could control it from back there, but uh, trying to go through the slides. But anyhow, I, I share that with you because this morning, uh, as we look at the book of Matthew, um, we're going to see that there are a lot of people that wear masks. And the masks that they wear are, are masks that we could judge the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We could judge these religious people, but this morning, are you wearing a mask? Uh, Am I wearing a mask? And not just with others. Do we have a mask on when it comes to God? Our relationship with God, are we real before him? Because, you know, he's not really interested in us being fake. He He wants the real us. And so read with me what happens here. Right after the parable of the marriage feast, Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and he said to them whose image and inscription is this and they said to him Caesar's and he said to them render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's when they heard these words they marveled and they left him and they went their way now this morning as we consider this portion of scripture one thing to note uh, this is the Passover week. Now, a third of the book of Matthew is is covered here in this last week of Jesus's life, which means that the Holy Spirit in particular wants to focus on this last week. Something else to note is that Matthew was what by occupation? He was a tax collector. So this is a pretty interesting question to Matthew, right? Now, Matthew, by nationality, he was Jewish, Um, but he was an employee of the Roman Empire. So basically, the Romans would say, okay, go ahead and collect the taxes. And he would go and collect the taxes. The tax collectors would do this. And then the Roman government would tell them, whatever you take off of the top, that's yours. That's your fee. You could keep that. So imagine one of your own countrymen coming to your door and knocking. Just imagine if the United States has gotten taken over. Um, we're, we're overrun by another foreign nation. And that nation be, begins to tax us and your job is to go door to door and receive taxes and whatever you receive from every home that you want to take off the top so if the government is saying okay take 15% you could take 25 and 10% would be yours so people hated the tax collectors and in israel there were there were two different groups two different frames of thought one of them the pharisees represented those that were sovereign God is our king we worship God alone they wanted to get the Romans out of there they couldn't stand the Romans but then there was another group called the Herodians and they were faithful to the Roman government and they were kind of supporters of the Roman government and so the Herodians and the Pharisees they hated each other they were enemies of one another but it's interesting that somehow or another Jesus because they both hated Jesus brings them together and the thing that happens is that even though both groups are against Jesus, they come together to question him. Now I want you to notice this in verse 15. They ask a religious question about paying taxes to Caesar, a religious question. They, they plotted how to entangle him in his talk. They weren't really sincerely asking questions. They were, they're thinking, how can we stump him? Um, how many of you have ever taught uh, whether it would be school or Sunday school or or some lessons to kids, raise your hand if you've you 've taught kids all right. Have you ever had a kid try to stump you okay they 're not really asking a question, but they just want to make you look a little bit stupid or they want to make it look like you don 't know what you're talking about and these guys they they plotted they they planned okay, what kind of questions are we going to ask him uh, I, I remember that when I was teaching at valley christian it was it was kind of fun. We used to do this thing on fridays um hank hanegraaff um used to have this program called the bible answer man i I think it's still on and uh before him um there was another guy i can't remember his name that walter martin Martin. yeah walter martin would lead the program so fridays i would do this thing called the bible answer man and, and students could ask any question they wanted they could disguise their handwriting and write it on a piece of paper and then i would get the questions i would begin to answer some of them And sometimes I would notice that a student would even write like with his left hand or her left hand to kind of like disguise the handwriting, so I didn't know who it was. And they would try to stump me with these questions, like, "Can God move? Can God create an immovable object that even He can't move?" Well, that's a stupid question, right? I mean, well, if God can do anything, you know. Or you know, they would ask these questions just to kind of stump me. And I noticed that the Pharisees here are plotting how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, I make mistakes, and sometimes when I talk, I say things I don't mean to say. Um, I, I hate that feeling. Don't, don't you hate that feeling? When you say something stupid, and you're trying to get it back out of your mouth, as soon as it comes out, it's gone. It's like launching an arrow when you let go. It's already on its way. And I, I've said stupid things to people. I, I've said things that I didn't mean to say, things that I didn't want to say, Jesus never made a mistake with his words. You ever think about that? Ever. They tried to catch him off guard. They tried to catch him when he was tired. They tried to catch him in in political situations. They tried to divide people. They asked him questions that no matter what answer he would give, it was going to be wrong. And yet he never stumbled, never made a mistake, never sinned with his lips. And it's important to realize the reason why he never sinned with his lips was because... The Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And his heart was pure and perfect. Um, He had absolute self-control over his words. See, we we sometimes lose control over our words when we're angry. Or when we're frustrated. Or when we're intimidated. Or when we're afraid. Or when someone is trying to flatter us. So what happens is they try to flatter Jesus. They try to butter him up. And try to like, they, they act like they're giving him a compliment. So... Notice they, in verse 16, they, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Um, remember that a disciple is what? What's a disciple? It's a student. It's a follower. These are followers of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were legalists. They were those that were experts in the law of God. And, and there were a few of them that were sincere that really did seek after the Lord. There, there are some that the Bible speaks of as pretty good people. But I'll tell you that, that a lot of these Pharisees were just trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And so these disciples, they, they, this religious group, they, they come to Jesus. And the Herodians were a political party that supported the family of the Herods, the policies that were instituted by Rome. And they said, teacher, now listen to what they tell him. We know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, listen to what they're saying. This is actually true, even though they're buttering him up. And let me explain it this way. First of all, they say, teacher, you are true. Is Jesus true? Absolutely. He's authentic. He's real. um, He speaks the truth. Jesus even said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life, okay? The second thing they said is you teach the way of God truthfully and and he did that um he taught the way of god truthfully and when it says you don't care about anyone think of it this way you don't care about anyone's opinion you don't you don't care what people think you're you're just going to be true you're you're going to say what's right and then the last part of it is you're not swayed by appearances you don't regard the person of men which means that you don't really um you're not swayed by appearances you're not a respecter of persons and before I go on, I think this is a good teaching lesson for us. Because wouldn't wouldn't you want to be so secure in your identity? Wouldn't you want to be so sure of what you believe? Wouldn't you want to be so sure of God that people could say of you, you're true. You're authentic, you're real. That that not only that but you you say the word of God truthfully. You don't pick and choose parts of the Bible to proof text your own lifestyle or viewpoint. See, sometimes we can take parts of the Bible that we like and we could have this designer God and we could say, okay, I like this part of what God says and I like this part of the Bible, I don't like this part, so I'll skip this part, I won't say this part. See, Jesus spoke the word of God, the full counsel of God, just like Paul the Apostle. The other thing is that it says you, you are true, you teach the word of God, you don't care about anyone's opinion. Now, this one is hard, especially when we're insecure and especially when we want people to like us. And I want you to think about this in the context of your life. Maybe you're a high school student, a junior high student, and you care so much about what other people, your peers think about you. Maybe you're uh, an adult that, that's a worker and you care so much about what your coworkers think about you. Or maybe you think about your peer group and your friends and you care so much about what your friends or your family thinks about you that at times you flip-flop and you're kind of wishy-washy and you're one way with one group of people and another way with another group of people. See, the scary thing is this. Jesus was talking to religious people, which means that sometimes in religious places, sometimes in church. We could be so afraid, like what Theo was saying, about what other people are thinking about us that we don't want to be real. We don't want to admit struggle with temptation. We don't want to admit it when we've blown it. We don't want to confess sin. We don't want to, we don't want to say, hey, I'm not perfect. In fact, we're, we're so afraid of other people really knowing us. Maybe it's because we're afraid that they won't love us. Maybe it's because we're afraid of rejection. And the thing about Jesus is, is the love of the father is so strong in his life. And his love of the father is so strong in his life. And his identity is so sure that even when he is surrounded by everyone else that has other opinions, he really doesn't care what they think. Not in a flippant bad way, but in a good way. He's not going to be swayed by opinions of people. And this is what they say, they're buttering him up. Hey, you're not swayed by other people's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances. See, there's a real danger in religious circles or um, places of worship where we could want to appear more holy, more spiritual than we really are. Like Theo was sharing, when when we open up, and that's why life groups, I, I just encourage you strongly to get a part of a life group or a small group of, of people that you get together to grow in your walk with the Lord, to begin to share these things, to share life with one another. Because I'll tell you what, if we never do that, then what we learn is we learn religious observance and we learn outward behavior. And inside, we could be struggling. Those are places to be able to just share, hey, you know, I read this scripture, I didn't understand it, or or here's something that I'm struggling with. So Jesus They come to him and they they butter him up with this thing. And then they say, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, this was the trap. In a sense, they're saying, we've got him now. That's it. We, We got him right where we want him. Because no matter what he answers, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful. And by the way, lawful, they're not talking about civil law. They're not talking about breaking the law, getting arrested for it. What are they talking about? They're talking about God's law. Is it lawful under God's law to pay taxes to Caesar? We all know what Caesar's like. And Caesar's evil. Caesar sets himself up as God. And so they're coming to him to try to trap him in this religious question. If he says that it is lawful under God's law to pay taxes to Caesar then they're going to say he must not really be the king, the Christ, the savior of the Jews. If he says it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll make himself out to be uh, an enemy of Rome and the Herodians will take care of him and he'll get arrested. Now notice in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and he said, why do you test me? And what does he call them? He says, you hypocrites. Now the word for hypocrite is a word that means literally to wear a mask, a wearer of masks, an actor. Um, in drama, have you ever seen, uh, maybe you've gone to a play, and in the in the foyer, they have uh, this symbol of a drama, and what it is, it, there's two masks. One is a happy face, and one is a sad face. And it's kind of representative of acting, because in acting, you might not be like the character that you're portraying. And what Jesus does is he says, you know what, you're acting, because you portray yourself as being this religious good person and yet inside there's something else that's going on so he calls them hypocrites can you imagine just how how the hair on the back of their necks will stand up when jesus calls them to the carpet they come to him they're the religious leaders and he says you know what you guys are a bunch of hypocrites now jesus doesn't he doesn't hold back and he says show me the tax money so they brought him a denarius And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now there's the great, the picture. Good. It's up there. Uh, It's a denarius Uh, from about the time of Christ. And if you notice that there's a picture on this denarius and it's a picture of Caesar. So just like we have on a quarter, you know, George Washington, you know, on a denarius, which was a day's wages, they had Caesar. And the inscription, if you could read that even, has Caesar's name on it. So Jesus says, hey, pull out a coin out of your pocket. So in a sense, that's what they do. They take a a coin out and he looks at it and he says, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. Now, when Jesus does this, he is confronting a religious question, but it's also important to note that Jesus deals with money throughout scripture. And, and up to a third of Jesus's teachings are about money. Now, I, in the past, I've kind of also gone um, to the opposite extreme in many ways. You know, I, I'm so, I was so gun shy as a new pastor because um, I see all the abuses of talking about money on TV, And sometimes they get really angry and really upset. Um, These guys, this one guy I remember, he said, uh, you know, the scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. If you've studied the context of that scripture, Jesus is talking to poor people that don't even know where they're going to live or where their food is going to be or what their clothing is going to be. And he says, don't worry about this. Seek first the kingdom of God. But I saw a television preacher you know, dressed up in in a super nice suit with a Rolex and jewelry and this super nice place, talk about this and say, what can be added to you except that which you don't have? And he said, so out there, what is it that you don't have? Is there the car that you want? Is there the house that you want? Is there the boat that you want? Whatever it is that you don't have, when you seek Jesus and you say, add to me, he will add to you what you don't have. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us. God is a blessing God. And I'm not saying that people with money and people that are wealthy are evil and people that are poor are godly because there are wealthy, poor. I mean, there are wealthy, godly people and evil, god, uh, evil, wealthy people. Right. And there are poor people that are both evil and godly. But what Jesus is doing is he's answering their religious question and he's showing them that by even having money that has Caesar's name and inscription on it, he's Throwing it back at them, saying, well, you're a part of the system also. Now, this is something that is very important. When Caesar's name is on the currency and and his inscription, these were experts in the law of God. These were experts in God's word. And in Genesis, going all the way to the first book of the Bible, which they were well-schooled in, it says that we are, in Genesis one twenty six created what? in the image of God. He says, okay, go ahead and pay this tax, but you are created in God's image. And because we are created in God's image, we're to give God and render to God the things that are are God's. Now, let me explain what this means for us. The very thing that they wanted to trap Jesus in, being a part of this worldly kingdom, was in fact uh, what they themselves were a part of, and Jesus turns it around And notice this, that Jesus doesn't tell them that they shouldn't pay taxes according to God's law. Now, in our country, we have something called the IRS. And there are tax loopholes and there are all these different types of things. And realize that there are write-offs and there are different exemptions. Take every exemption you could take. If there is, according to the law, if there is some way that you don't have to pay taxes because of some reason, and legally you could back that up and verify that, then that's, that's a civil thing. But what Jesus is talking about is God's law. And in, according to God's law, it is not wrong for us to pay taxes. Now, Caesar was wicked. More, more wicked, you know, he, was, he wanted people to worship him. Um, and yet, Jesus doesn't say don't pay taxes. In Romans chapter 13, we know that government is ordained by God. But I also wanna say this, There are limits to civil obedience. Where do you cross the line? When should civil disobedience be enacted? If God's law goes in contrast to man's law, if there is ever a time when the law, which in our country could happen... You know, when I was in high school, I remember thinking way off that that could happen. And, and we're closer now than we ever have been to losing religious freedoms and different things like that. And yet we're never hindered by law to worship God, right? We could always worship God. No one can stop you from worshiping God. They can stop you from meeting in a public place by arresting you, but they can never stop you from worshiping God. And when God's law goes in contrast with man's law, we have to choose whom are we serving? Are we serving God or are we serving man? I I highly, highly recommend uh, you reading about a, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany. And during the time that Adolf Hitler came into power, what he did is he gathered all the pastors together and he told the pastors, as long as you do not interfere with civil affairs, as long as you leave these things to me, I'll leave the soul of the people to you, but the soul of the nation will be mine. And they left him alone. And they stopped speaking against the things that Adolf Hitler was doing, even though as Christians, they knew that it was wrong. But there were a small group of them that said, no, we must obey God rather than man. And and, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those guys. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer became a martyr that gave his life because he would not buckle. He fled to America. He studied in the United States but then realized that the church in Germany needed him and he went back to Germany to continue to minister. So there are times as we see in scripture, do you remember that the the maidservants, um, that when Moses was born, that they hid the Jewish babies. Do you remember that? And they were considered righteous. Do you remember Rahab? Rahab hid the spies and she lied and she was considered righteous. So there are times that, yes, there will be conflict, but Jesus is really getting to the heart of the issue, and he's saying, who do you belong to? Do you belong to the government, or do you belong to God? The next question that they try to trap Jesus in, uh, second one is a doctrinal question about the resurrection. So, hey, we couldn't get him in this political question, or, I mean, this religious question about the law. Let's get him in this doctrinal question. So the Sadducees, they wanted their turn to try to, get jesus to to blow it now keep in mind the sadducees only accepted the authority of the first five books of the law the first five books of the old testament the books of moses the sadducees also did not believe in a spirit world they didn't believe in the resurrection they believed that only the material world what you see here and now that's what's real and they were more wealthy because they kind of kowtowed to the romans In verse 23, read with me what happens. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to him and they asked him, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also, then the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also, therefore in the resurrection whose wife of the seven will she be for they all had her as their wife so i don't think that this is a real question again they're trying to stump the teacher i don't think that this is sincere i don't think that there was really this this situation that happened and if it was then there's something fishy about that right can you imagine this woman being married and like she goes through these six brothers and they all die, you know, and then the seventh one dies also and they're all brothers. You know, I think that there's something going on there. But but notice that they quoted the Levitical law, which said that yes, if, if the oldest dies and there's no one to, to take care of the offspring or no one to start a family, then to take care of that wife, then the, the younger brother would go ahead and marry her. That was Levitical law. But I want you to see something Even though they quoted the Levitical law, they made a mistake in application. Now, for those of you that know the inductive Bible study method, that means that you study the Bible and let the word of God speak. What is the first step? Starts with an O. Observation. Observation. You just read it, state back the obvious, what it says. What is the I? Interpretation. That means what does it mean? What is it saying? Now, when you interpret scripture, here's a good rule. Let scripture interpret scripture. Don't just take one verse out of its context and say, this is a doctrine. What does the rest of the Bible say? And if we mess up in interpretation, you know what's gonna happen? We're gonna mess up in application. They messed up in their interpretation, therefore they messed up in their application. So Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken. I love this, what he says to the Sadducees. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. So these are experts in God's law. And he says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, which Jesus is really putting it in the face of the Sadducees, there is a resurrection. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, I want you to notice that they are like angels, but they are not angels. What does that mean? um one of my favorite movies is it's a wonderful life great great uh movie bad theology if you ever watch it it says that you know we become angels and and we try to earn our wings that's not biblical it's a it's a good movie bad doctrine um but when he says that we are like angels angels don't get married angels don't have um you know marriages they're 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 beings that don't have a a sex male or female In heaven, relationships are going to be different. We're not going to become angels, but it says that we will be like the angels in in some of these ways. Will we know each other in heaven? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely believe that. We see in scripture um, different instances of that. Even when Jesus is talking about, remember the rich man and Lazarus, there's a consciousness. We're not going to be dumber in heaven than we are on earth. You know, it's not going to be memory swipe. You know, we'll whoosh, you know and we get memory swipe. We don't remember anything at all. But will relationships change? Yeah, they will change. In in our world that we live in, this physical world, the closest relationships to us they bring meaning and purpose in our lives. They give us joy. Um, I, I think about marriage. I think about family. I think about friends. But notice that in heaven, it's going to be different because our relationships are gonna be different. The greatest needs that we are going to face are going to be met by knowing the Lord. Our flesh is gonna be gone. It's gonna be this incredible thing where Jesus will be with us. And we're not going to be limited by, by our fallenness, by our, our sinfulness. But Jesus says, hey, you don't know the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. In verse 31 But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Notice when Jesus says, remember when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he appeared to the Israelites and identified himself in this way, He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's present tense. God is the God of the living. So when the the Sadducees come and they ask him this question, he goes right to their error and he shows them there is a resurrection. Third question is an ethical question about the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? What What is rank number one? In verse 34, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The Shema. Um... Remember that this is the Hebrew, uh, in, this important prayer in Judaism refers to Deuteronomy 6, four. begins with the command to hear O Israel. In fact, in the context, it says, Hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And to this, all of the Pharisees would say, Amen! Amen! You know, they're, Amen! You know, that's it. This lawyer, he's asking him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. And they, they say, Amen. But then notice in verse 39 there's something that he says that kind of throws, it throws everything out of whack for them because they were those that claimed to love God. But in verse 39, Jesus said, and the second is like it. The second commandment, it's linked to it. In other words, they, they go together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, saying the law and the prophets. So, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he doesn't say you shall love your neighbor greater than yourself, less than yourself. I also want you to notice that Jesus assumes something. What? We already love ourselves. Now, a person might say, I don't love myself. In fact, I I hate myself. It's all I think about all day long is myself. And I hate myself. And that's all that's on my mind. And other people might be struggling and going through problems or trials. I'm not really thinking about them. I'm thinking about myself because I just hate myself, and that's all I think about is myself, and, and I just, I mean, think about this, when you're hungry, you think about you eating, if all of us are here, and I go till two o'clock, you know, at some point in time, you're thinking, I'm hungry, you're not looking around saying, these poor people, these poor people are all hungry all around me, you're saying, no, I am hungry, it, it's all about me, if I took a group photo and, and we posted it on the internet, hey, welcome to, to Calvary of Santa Cruz, who do you look for first? You look for you, remember? And you determine whether or not it's a good picture based on what? How did you come out? You know, you, everyone else could be smiling and looking great and your hair's all sticking up and you're blinking like this and you're saying, terrible picture, rip it up, use another one. And in the other picture, everyone else could be messed up and you could look great and say, that's the picture that we should post. I mean we all always think about ourselves. We think about ourselves when we're tired. We don't think about other people being tired. We think about our, our our reputation. We don't think about other people's reputation. Now we might but but Jesus is saying, "Hey, just take that same concern when you're always thinking about yourself and have that concern and love for others." Now, here's the question, who is your neighbor? I'm not going to go into the the whole uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, or the, the account of the Good Samaritan, right now. But I want you to think about this first of all, figuratively. Who's your neighbor? It's really everybody, right? It's people you work with, people you go to school with, people you live with, people that you're around. Those are your neighbors. But now let me ask this question, um, specifically and 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 uh, literally, who is your neighbor? I want you to think about where you live and and do a tic-tac-toe grid. You're 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 in the middle. And I know that some of you, you know, you don't have neighbors to your left or right, but just think about it this way. The people across the street, the people that live behind you, the people that live on this side, the people that live on that side. If you're a student and you sit in the classroom, think about the person that sits in front of you, behind you, to your right, left, you know, to the corner that way. If you're at a, a workplace and you have an office, the people that work by you, and you know, the sad thing is so many times we don't even know our neighbors. We don't, we don't really care about our neighbors. We don't care who they are. We just care that they don't park in my driveway, in my space. Uh, we care that they're quiet, that their dog doesn't go to the bathroom on our lawn. And that's all we care about are our neighbors. That's all we really need to know but yet God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means that when we don't really care about our neighbors and the people that are around us, there's a heart check problem. Because God says this in his word in, in 1 John 4, it says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen to this. We love because what? He first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So you know what? That commandment, that greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you want a good measuring stick as to whether or not you're doing a good job at loving God? One of the ways is to look at how much we love people how much we care about people. Jesus saw crowds. And how did he see crowds? It says he saw the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd. Do you know how I see crowds? It's crowds. It's crowds of people, Uh, long lines, traffic, people in my way, people that are stopping me from getting to where I wanna get to. And yet when God begins to touch a person's heart, we begin to see people as he sees them. I remember when I first became a Christian in high school, started walking with the Lord, I started seeing my school differently. I didn't see all the different cliques. I didn't see, okay, you know, and at the time there was the metal guys, you know, heavy metal. And there were the guys with the spiked colored hair and the, you know, the dog collar and, you know, all the, that was like that group. And then there was this other group that were the jocks and they're the other, the breakdance group, you know, and then there was this, which I was a part of. And then there was this other group that was, you know, there's all these different groups. And I used to think of myself just as like, I don't fit in there. I don't fit in there. I fit in here. This is my, this is my crowd. This is my group. But when I started to walk with the Lord, God began to do something. I started to see every person as someone that God wanted to reach. And I began to pray, God, could you help me to reach out to them? And I started going across the lines and started reaching out to different groups. And I was that guy that would go from group to group just because, not because I wanted to or I'm social or I'm an extrovert, but because I knew that there were different people that needed to know the Lord. Sometimes that means befriending someone that wouldn't be a natural friend. They like country music. Um, they, are <laughs> they are Giants fans. I'm a Dodger fan. Um, you know, and, and you're friends of mine, right? And I'm a Dodger fan, so you could, you could cross lines. See, we could cross lines sometimes and even be a friend of someone that doesn't, isn't a Christian. We could be a friend of someone that is a Muslim. We could be a friend of someone that, that their lifestyle is contrary to God's word, but we could reach out to them. Why? God loves them. Why do we care? Because God loves us. And if we don't love God and we don't love them, then why would they ever want to come and hear any kind of message about a God in which this person that lives by them, works with them, goes to school with them, is on the same team as them, doesn't even know their name, nor does that person care. It is so important that we pray, God, give us a love for you and a love for others. And where does it begin? It begins by receiving the love of God. Now, Now he's going to make it personal. We'll close with this in verse 41. Lest we could think that, hey, you know, those are all generic categories that Jesus is talking about. He makes it very personal. He ends with this personal question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, I want you to notice this. Now Jesus asks them a question. He turns the table and he says in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? That question is the question of all questions. This morning, this is the question that God is asking us. The word Christ is the Messiah, the promised one. Jesus himself is the Christ. So he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So they said, yes, he would be a descendant of David. That was something that was prophesied. They knew their Bible. They understood that. But I want you to notice what Jesus is saying in verse 43. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. See, son of David is a human title. It's a, a, a biological natural descendant of David, son of David. It was also the title for the Messiah. So that was, the, that was the, the man, human side of Jesus. But then what Jesus said, who is the Christ? What he is showing is that he is not just man, but he is also God. No one else did the Lord call my Lord. It says, no, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord. How can God say to anyone else, God? God doesn't say to anyone else, God. He doesn't call you and me, hey, Lord. So what he's doing is he's saying that that Jesus is Lord or the Christ is Lord. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what he was showing them is that Jesus is more than just a good man. And if we only think that Jesus is a good man, then we miss the boat. If we only think that Jesus is a good man, we don't understand who he is. Jesus is God. The resurrection is real. There is a life after this life. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, during this last week of Jesus's life, what week is this historically? It's Passover week. And if you remember, the Passover lamb was to be examined for four days. He was to be examined, that that lamb was to be examined to be without blemish, to make sure that it was a good lamb. Jesus is being examined because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. And for those that put our faith and hope and trust in him, it is not merit-based. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on being good enough. It's based on what he has done. And this morning, have you received him? This morning, have you accepted him? This morning, by faith, have you put your trust not in yourself, Not in church attendance, not in being a good moral person, but in Christ alone to save you, to save me. This morning, as we go into a time of worship and communion, the bottom line is this. Love God, love others, worship Jesus. Love God, love others, worship Jesus. You know, I could make things so complicated. I have a a gift at that. Um, I could take something simple and make it complex very easily. And Jesus wants to take something complex and make it very simple. Love God, love others, worship Jesus. Don't just say, I'm going to follow his teachings. It's not enough. We need to trust him and follow him. It's not just studying the Bible. It's God change my heart. So as we pray, we are going to enter into a time of communion. And I want to explain what this is and what this means. Um, in a, a couple of weeks, we are going to get to this this last supper the lord 's Supper and Jesus, when he ate with his disciples and he it says in Luke with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this this Passover meal with you. When we partake of the bread, what it represents is jesus 's body, which was broken for us in, in a few weeks, we are going to go through jesus 's trial he was beaten, he was scourged with With just a cat of nine tails. His back was was ripped open. He had a crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. He was hit in the face. He was mocked. He was spit upon. All of these things he went through to take our punishment upon himself. When we partake of the bread, we need to remember that when we look at that, we realize that that's representative of Jesus's body that was broken for us. When we partake of the cup, The cup is the covenant that is sealed in his blood. Remember this, that when Jesus drank the cup, he was drinking the cup of God's wrath. And God is a just God. Sin must be punished. Jesus took our punishment upon himself. So when we partake of the cup, we need to remember the blood that was shed for us, that perfect blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. Now, in scripture, it says that we are not to partake in an unworthy manner. We're to examine ourselves before him. And let me explain that unworthy manner. None of us is worthy, right? None of us ever comes to a place like, hey, I had a really good week. I could take communion this week. Or I had a really bad week. I can't do it this week. No, an unworthy manner is not realizing the blood and the body of Christ. An unworthy manner is, is coming and saying, hey, I did this on my own. That's why I get to partake. That's unworthy. Worthy is saying, hey, I'm not worthy. It's a contradiction in terms, but it's really more of a paradox. And when we come to Christ and when you take the bread and cut back to your seat, I'm going to ask you to hold on to it. And as the Holy Spirit searches our hearts and we say, God, search my heart, ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to, to take away those things from us that are so hard to give up. Those things that grudges that we've been holding on to, unforgiveness. Um condemnation temptation that we've given into lord jesus i confess all of these things god take these things from me i haven't been loving towards my neighbor i haven't even cared about my neighbor and yet i say that i love you god cleanse my heart god change me and allow the holy spirit to minister to you and then what we're going to do i'd like you today to hold on to the cup and the bread and we are going to partake together so the worship team can come up let's pray And if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. I'm going to pray a prayer. And as you pray this by faith, what you're doing is you're just receiving. You're putting that trust in Christ. And then I would invite you to partake of communion as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We don't love you because we're afraid of punishment or wrath. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And God, I just uh, admit that there are times when we doubt that love. I know, Lord, there are probably some people here that doubt that love today. Maybe they're struggling with doubt, Lord, because of something bad that has happened to them. Maybe they're struggling because of something bad that has happened to someone that they love. And yet, God, in your word, it says that you have demonstrated your own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we thank you that you reach out to us. And right now, Lord, I pray if anyone here has never received Christ as their Lord and their Savior, then by faith, Lord, that they would do so today. I'm going to pray this prayer, and if that's you, if you've never received Christ, then I would ask that you would pray this prayer with me right where you are so that you could partake of communion with us. Because God wants you to commune with him. He wants you to know him. He wants relationship with you. And so would you pray this with me, Jesus Forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. I pray that you would come into my life and that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you rose again and that shows that you really are who you said that you are. And I pray that you would help me to follow you all the days of my life. I put my faith and trust in you to save me, to change me, and I thank you in Jesus' name. And Father, for those of us that have already received Christ as our Lord and Savior, bless this time. Lord, cleanse our hearts, search our hearts, and see if there be any wicked way within us. God, both known sin and unknown sin, conscious sin and unconscious sin, Lord, cleanse us. Reveal to us any blind spots that we may have. And Lord, may we receive the bread and the cup, because Lord, we're not worthy, but we realize you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just come and take the bread and cut back to your seat and hold on to that, and we are going to partake together as a body. Paul the Apostle wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we uh, partake of the bread, may we remember what Christ has been through. Remember that he did this on the night in which he was betrayed. Uh, Some of you feel the hurt of betrayal. Some of you feel the hurt of relationships that have been broken. Someone has broken a trust, someone has hurt you. And sometimes in that hurt, it's really hard to trust God because we say, God, if you really love me, if you were in control, why did this happen? Why did this person do this? And Jesus wants you to know that he's been through what you've been through and worse. Sometimes we feel like no one understands and maybe that's true, no one does, but God does. God's been through more than we've ever been through. And so let's pray and, and let's take the bread In fact, I need to grab it for myself as well. And we'll take the bread together. Jesus, thank you for what you went through on our behalf. Your body that was broken, the physical pain, the emotional pain that you went through on our behalf. And God, we thank you for that. I pray for anyone here that is is close to losing heart, those that are just struggling with faith, Lord, that you would remind us of what you've gone through on our behalf. Lord, we don't do this lightly. We want to really understand and and know what it is that we are doing. We're not just participating in a religious ceremony, but this is relationship with you. You are real, you are God, you you are to be worshiped. We thank you for what you have been through on our behalf, in Jesus' name. Let's partake of the bread. then in verse 25, it says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Father, as we partake of the cup, we, we do so remembering what Christ has been through on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. And Lord, while we look back at the death of Christ, we also look forward to his return. So when we partake of this cup, may it be remembering the blood that was shed for us, but may it also be that we look forward to him returning. God, may we never lose sight of that expectation, that motivation for how we live now and and that urgency for wanting to reach people. the Lord may it be begin because we love because you have first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Let's partake of the cup. As we continue to worship. One of the ways that we worship God is by tithes and offerings. And Jesus spoke a lot about money not because he's poor. Not because he's trying to um, take; he's he's a generous God. But one of the ways that we worship God is by saying, "God, we want you to be first with our first fruits." In the Old Testament, there was a law in which a tithe was a tenth, a tenth of everything the the fruits, the crops, the the flocks. And on top of that, there were other offerings as well the free will offerings, the grain offerings, and those types of things. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The law has been abolished, but yet in our hearts there is still that law of love that says, God, I worship you with my first fruits, and I will put you first in my life. If you've never tithed, if you've never given, then I just encourage you to start. And I encourage you to start not because, hey, we need this for the church or anything like that. Um, It's your relationship with the Lord. And if I can't trust God in this aspect of my life, I'm not going to be able to trust him with any other aspect of my life. If I can't trust him in this aspect of my life, I'm not going to be able to trust him with relationships I'm not gonna be able to trust him with my future and 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 uh, taking control. And so as we pray, let's ask the Lord to bless the offering and may it be offered joyfully and hilariously because of what God has done for us, not out of guilt or compulsion. Lord, we thank you so much. You are a good God. You are a generous God. And Lord, while the tithes and the offerings, Lord, that, that come, Lord, are used for ministry, Lord, even before we look at it as a practical thing, to help a missionary or to further um, the work of of the, the church or advancement of the gospel. Lord, we look at it first as worship. God, you are worthy. And we want you to take first place in our lives and we wanna trust you. And God, this is one of the areas where we struggle so many times to really trust you. And Lord, I confess myself as well. And so Lord, we wanna trust you by saying, God, we give you preeminence in our lives. So receive these tithes and offerings now as an act of worship